of the things that we'll talk about often, not all the time, in God's church is we'll we'll ask each other, you know, how well can we prove the different things that we believe, the different doctrines that are fundamental that we believe. And this is something that Mr. Weston has mentioned occasionally in meetings. I know Dr. Meredith would mention this a number of times as well, that there are just important fundamental doctrines that all of us, including the ministry, we need to be able to explain and we need to understand why we believe what we believe. Being a Christian, being a true Christian, uh, is not an independent project. Uh, Being a true Christian is not uh, a mission where you are really entitled to go out and have your own extremely different beliefs. Now, we all are growing in grace and knowledge, but we're to grow into uh, the unity, the unity of the body. And there are some scriptures that, of course, point us to that that truth. Let's turn to a couple scriptures as we begin the sermon that are somewhat familiar. Philippians is a good place to begin. Philippians chapter two. We'll turn to a couple, uh, review a couple passages in Philippians. So let's turn to Philippians chapter two and notice in verse twelve, where Paul writes, uh, "Therefore, my beloved," and he's speaking to the church, to us, of course, as well down through the ages. As you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. God's good pleasure is that we will all come into a unity of the faith and that we will all come into the kingdom, that we will become first fruits, that we will inherit eternal life, that we will become part of his family. But if you notice in verse 12, uh, in a very loving way, Paul is telling all of us that there is an aspect of Christianity where we are to bring our thoughts and our opinions in subjection to, to core doctrine, uh, to God's word. Uh, there's an, uh, an aspect of obedience. And whether or not the minister Paul was there in, in, in somebody's house or he was somewhere else, uh, Paul expected the church to and the members, uh, all of us, to have a certain understanding and to be cohesive, to have unity. Now, we have to work out our own salvation, though. Uh, the church of God, the ministry can't force you to believe something. And that's not our, our intent. Uh, you have to work out your own salvation. But notice that we're to do it with fear and trembling, verse 12. Uh, for any of us who think that we can be a solo project, that's not how God works. Uh, we are to work out our own salvation in prayer uh, and Bible study before God, the Father, and with Jesus Christ, his intervention. But we are to bring our thoughts and minds into obedience to doctrine. <clears throat> Let's notice a chapter over in ver- chapter 3, uh, Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. Philippians 3, verse 12. Here uh, we have that famous passage where Paul is talking about pressing toward the goal. That might be what it's titled in your uh, Bible, the chapter header. And he says, not that I already have attained or I'm already perfected, uh, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. Uh, Jesus Christ has laid hold of each of us. If if we've been called, then Jesus Christ has laid hold of us and he's working with us in a a special, intimate way. And that's something I know we're thankful for. Um, So but there is effort involved as, as well. You can see Paul makes that point. And then verse 13, brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, uh, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal. So what Paul is 
essentially saying here, and this will be one of my points later in the sermon, is that uh, we, we are working toward our goal. We're working toward our reward. There's work involved, and we understand that. We understand that. <clears throat> I won't turn to all the other scriptures that sort of emphasize this point, but you could jot down in your notes if you'd like. First uh, Thessalonians chapter 1. Verses 2 and 3, 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 2 and 3. And you could also, I'll give you one more reference, Hebrews chapter 12, uh, verses 1 and 2 and 3. And these scriptures make it very plain that we are, we are running a race, we are working, uh, we're working uh, a labor, we're trying to grow in faith, it's through Christ uh, in us uh, that we can complete our race. But being a Christian is not a passive exercise. It's not a solo exercise. And it's not a passive exercise. Uh, we're involved in really the most important project, if you want to phrase it that way. That's not a word we would often use. But the most important project ever in the, in, in, in the history of time. You know, what's more important? God creating the, the stars and the galaxies or God creating a family? Well, we all understand. God creating a family is what's most important. And so he expects us to... Uh, be excited about that and to work toward that, to do our part. <clears throat> God desires that we know what we believe and that we can prove what we believe. Let's turn to a couple more scriptures talking about unity and, and harmony and, and doctrine. Uh, let's turn over to Ephesians. Now, this is a scripture that uh, we often uh, use, Ephesians chapter 4, when we talk about uh, chapter uh, 4, down in verse 11, 12, 13, talks about the structure and the offices within the church. And uh, these are, yes, they are functional, but these are also offices. Uh, don't accept the uh, lie that they're not offices. They are offices. They're, they're functions as well, but they are offices, clearly. <clears throat> but I don't want to emphasize that. What I want to emphasize is what you should be familiar with, uh, down around verse 13, 14. So in verse 11... Uh, Paul records that God gave some to be apostles and some prophets and some evangelists, some pastors, some teachers. But there's a purpose. And the purpose is not to oppress or try to force people to uh, believe uh, what we're teaching you. We want to encourage you in the faith. We want to encourage you in what's true. And, and that's what verse 13 brings out, uh, that, there, that there's a purpose there, verse 12 and 13. Sorry, verse 12 and 13. There's a purpose. It's to equip the saints. It's to equip the saints. And it's for ministering. That's a verb. That's an action. The ministers minister. Uh, And for what purpose? To edify the body. For for what purpose? So we all come into the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. The knowledge of the Son of God is an entire sermon topic right there. Mr. Weston has uh, written a new book. Uh, Hopefully you've read it, John 3.16. And, uh, you know, well worth a review. And you can, you can extract a lot out of just the one principle here that we are to come into a knowledge of the Son of God. Who is he? What did he do? Is he our Lord? Why did he give his life for us? Whose love was it? Now, Jesus Christ loves us absolutely 100% as well. But whose love was it that determined that the Son would die for us? The Father's love. There's, there's a lot in this scripture. But what I want to emphasize again is unity. And then verse 14, that we're no longer children tossed to and fro. We don't want to be children as far as doctrine goes. There are many other uh, passages I could turn to, 
I'll just turn to one and then I'll give you one more just for your own uh, your own notes. <clears throat> but let's turn to Titus. Titus. And we have <clears throat> the qualifications um, in a couple uh, places. We have qualifications for the ministry. But here in Titus chapter um, one, verses five and six and seven. Again, I want to uh, emphasize the, the the purpose here, not so much the office, but the purpose. Titus chapter one and uh, verse five. <clears throat> so we have some qualifications to be an elder, uh, which Paul is telling uh, Titus that he needs to to put elders in the different cities. But there's a purpose. And so verse six, the, the elder needs to be blameless and the husband of one wife and um, faithful children. And he needs to be not covetous or a drunkard. And he needs to be, you know, blameless and so forth, not self-willed and so forth. Notice verse in verse nine, though, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine to teach others, my own paraphrase. And so <clears throat> being a Christian is an educational process as well, isn't it? It's an educational process. We're all learning. All of us are. I'm learning and you're learning and, and we're all learning. But we should be learning together, growing in the unity of the faith. And I think in the church today, I, I'll say that I think we're doing a fairly good job. Uh, I'm younger, but I've been around. I was you know, born uh, into the church, and and I do think we have a, a a unity of the faith and a harmony. But let's let's appreciate that, and let's let's check ourselves and ask ourselves uh, what are our fundamental beliefs, and can we prove our fundamental beliefs, and are our fundamental beliefs in line with the living church's living church of God's fundamental beliefs? So the title for the the sermon today is "What are some of your fundamental beliefs." What are some of your fundamental beliefs? Now, we could go over many different beliefs. I'll just survey a few. Oh, and I mentioned I'd give you one other scripture just for reference. Uh, You could jot down in your notes 2 Timothy 2, verse 15, uh, where we are told to to study, to be approved uh, workers in the faith, rightly able to divide the word of truth. So, again, many many scriptures we uh, we could turn to. I'd like to read something that Dr. Meredith wrote a few years ago, and it's a passage that um, struck me then, and I I, I try to remember it. Uh, He wrote this for the Tomorrow's World magazine, and the title of his article was, Are You Zealous for the Truth? Are You Zealous? Now, Dr. Meredith was a man of zeal. Uh, I think everybody can appreciate that. That man had zeal. He came into the office every morning. And, and until the last year or two of his life, he, he walked up those stairs and I saw him do it many mornings and he had his cane sometimes and sometimes he didn't. Uh, he drove himself, but he also drove himself to study. He drove himself to study. He drove himself to teach. Uh, he was a, a, a fantastic teacher. And so he had zeal. And I think all of God's ministers have zeal. We should. And I think all of you have zeal. If you didn't have zeal, you probably wouldn't be here today because Who's the God of this world? If you didn't have zeal, you probably wouldn't be here today because Satan throws his fiery darts at all of us and he puts traps and pitfalls in front of us. So I'm complimentary of the church. Uh, For those of you who have been around a while, uh, if you didn't have zeal, you may have gone with the apostasy. For those who were around in the 80s and 90s. So I do compliment the church in general, but I think it's appropriate from time to time to remind ourselves. 
that we need to have this zeal, a zeal for knowledge of the truth, to come into a unity of the truth. So what Dr. Meredith wrote in his Tomorrow's World article, Are You Zealous for the Truth? One of the things he wrote is the following. He wrote, remember how God's word commended the Berean Christians for really studying and proving the truth for themselves by diligent Bible study. And then he quotes Acts 17, verse 11. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. The Bereans had a positive attitude. And we don't know all the history. The, the, the epistles do give us insight into what Paul's referencing there. I won't get into a uh, epistles of Paul uh, class. But <clears throat> there were issues in Thessalonica. And the Bereans had a, a more uh, susceptible mind, a positive mind. And they studied the scriptures to prove that these words were true. They didn't study the scriptures to disprove Paul. They studied the scriptures to prove that they were true. They didn't just accept everything without proving it against God's word. Uh, they weren't, you know, mindless. Uh, they studied, but they studied daily, diligently. And I don't want to move from preaching to meddling, but how many of uh, us do real Bible study every single day? Every single day, every single morning, every single morning. I'll pause so it can be uncomfortable. (laughs) Sometimes I don't, you know, I'll admit, I mean, I get my prayer in. I won't tell you my little personal routine. I find myself getting up earlier and earlier as I get older and older. And uh, since I run Internet stuff, I've got things coming in overnight. So I'll definitely pray first. But, you know, um, uh, I'll, and I almost always do my Bible study in the morning, but I'll, I'll confess, uh, sometimes I'll do my prayers and make my coffee and check stuff, and before I know it, you know, um, I've been working, and, and, and I, then I gotta get, go into the office and start the rest of the day. And, uh, the good thing about working at headquarters, I, you know, I can do my Bible study during the day some too, so, don't, don't take this out of context. I do my Bible study every day, but, but sometimes not every morning, so I'll confess. <clears throat> Dr. Meredith, though, he continues. I'll let him put a little more pressure on us, right? Uh, please ask yourself, how many hours a week do I personally spend watching television? Then ask, how many hours a week do I spend studying the Holy Bible, the inspired revelation and instruction manual from my creator? If you do a log and you're watching TV more for more time than you're doing Bible study, you should just ask yourself what that means. Where are your priorities? I'm not, we don't, this is not yardstick religion. We're not going to say, you know, X hours or your, you know, but just ask yourself that question. It does show you where your priorities are. Do a log. Do a log. It's easy to watch too much TV or too much YouTube or too much whatever. It's easy to surf the web for an hour and an hour's gone. <clears throat> so, what are some of your fundamental tr- uh, beliefs? What are some of your fundamental beliefs? I've uh, pulled a few of these from the statement of fundamental beliefs. Now, don't raise your hand. But <clears throat> if uh, I asked you uh, to find the statement of fundamental beliefs, uh, could you find the statement of fundamental beliefs? Okay, it's on the it's on the website. We link to it on the website. So if you um, don't know it or haven't reviewed it for a while, 
then go to tomorrowsworld.org or lcg.org. It's on the Spanish websites and the French website, and we link to it, you know, and uh, and review it, review it. Some of these are from the Statement of Fundamental Beliefs. I'm not um, just plagiarizing it. I've, you know, given my own, uh, I'll give you my own scripture. Some of these are my own scriptures. But the first uh, state, the first fundamental belief I'd like to discuss briefly is <clears throat> the proper understanding of the way to salvation. I'd like to review that briefly. Now, this is an important question. It may be one of the most important questions for us personally. Let's turn to, well, before I turn, before I turn um, to, to Matthew, we're going to go to Matthew. But before I turn, uh, I went on the Internet and looked uh, at other Christian ministries, you know, so, so to speak, professing Christian ministries. And I looked at what do they say about salvation and you know being saved and once saved, always saved and so forth. And my intent is not to. Uh, tear down anyone, but uh, I, I stumbled across many quotes I could give you that would be um, unfair for me to to use. I mean, they were egregiously wrong, and you know. But but I, I stumbled across uh, the Billy Graham website and and um, and looked at one of his articles, and I, I think the topic was how can we know if we are really saved? I think that was the the study question topic on the Billy Graham website. And I will tell you that he quoted some good scriptures, and you know there, there's truth and error in what he said. And um, <clears throat> one of the answers that the Billy Graham website gives is they, they sort of structure it this way, and this is under the question of how can we know if we are really saved. Uh, they 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 have an introduction, then they say, well, because God word te- God's word tells us, and God cannot lie. Well, there's a little bit of error before the the, the little bit of truth there. And then they, they reference 1 John 5.11. Let's turn to 1 John 5.11. Just to give you a little insight into what some of the, the professing Christian world uh, teaches and believes. And again, I don't ridicule them. Uh, their minds have not been fully opened yet. And um, maybe God will call uh, you know, Franklin Graham. Who knows? Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that be wonderful? First John chapter five, verse eleven is is used on the Billy Graham website. Uh, let's notice what it says. First John five eleven, and this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. And so, essentially, the end, right? The end. God has given us eternal life, and that life is in His Son. The end. You have eternal life. Well, no, there's more. There's more to the passage, and there are more scriptures on the topic. I, I, I don't want to oversimplify, but that's essentially the angle that the Billy Graham website was taking. But if you continue just reading this passage, uh, does it not talk uh, further down in the passage about uh, those who are at risk of losing their salvation? Does it not? Does it not? It talks in, down in verse 15 and 16 about a brother who's sinning, and some sins lead to death. Well, so, which, and they didn't quote the rest of the, of the passage. So you, you can't have it both ways. You can't have a brother uh, who has eternal life because the uh, eternal life is, um, is uh, uh, because God has eternal life and the life is in his son, which is what verse uh, 11 says. You can't have it both ways. You can't say, well, that means that a brother, that all brothers have eternal life, but then on the other hand, a few sentences later, there's some brothers that are in danger of losing 
their salvation. I would suggest reading Mr. Ames's uh, article, Have You Committed the Unpardonable Sin? Not that I want to talk about the unpardonable sin uh, today, but he goes into very good uh, detail about, uh, it, it was a secondary point in his article, but he goes into very good detail about, you know, does, does, is, is it once saved, always saved? Do you have eternal life in you? Let's turn to some scriptures to help us further prove what's the truth here. Let's turn to Matthew. You know, when Jesus Christ was asked this question, and I, I do, I'll preface by saying that in the church, sometimes we will emphasize a little more over here for a decade or so, and then we'll emphasize a little more over here for a decade or so. It doesn't mean the church is teaching wrong. It doesn't. But there have been times in the church where we've emphasized law a little more, and there are times in the church where we've emphasized grace a little more. And if if anybody takes offense to my um, stating that, just listen to about 10 of Dr. Meredith's sermons in the last five years where he, he made that same comment. Let's see how Jesus Christ answers the question when he's asked the question that people go to the Billy Graham website to ask. Let's see what Jesus Christ says. That's probably a good place to go. So Matthew chapter um, 19. And again, this this is uh, the proper understanding of salvation. That's the first fundamental belief I'd like to discuss briefly. And this is brief. These are just a little overview of the a few points. Uh, so Matthew chapter 19, and here we have verse 16, the, the young uh, ruler, the, the young nobleman. He comes up and he says, uh, teacher, good teacher, uh, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? This is the question. This is the question. Salvation. What may I do? Now, hopefully we all understand the context and this, this, this man was prideful and he kept the letter of the law, but he was not accepting Jesus Christ as, you know, he didn't accept Jesus Christ. He didn't understand uh, repentance. He was self-righteous. There's a lot more to the story. But he was asking an honest, well, maybe not an honest question, but he was asking a question that a lot of people ask. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? What did Jesus Christ say after he corrects him in verse 17 uh, at the beginning? What did he say? Did he get into a long, you know, was it a 10-page paper about all kinds of repentance and this and that? Now, that's important. But what did he say? At least what's recorded for us? He said, keep the commandments, verse 17. Keep the law. And then he gave a few of the Ten Commandments, verse 18 and 19. Now, there should be no ambiguity here. Now, do you earn salvation? No, that's, that's not what I'm saying. That's not what we teach. But the law, the law is one of the first ingredients uh, that we have to mix among other ingredients. Uh, if we're true Christians, that will lead us on the path toward salvation. Now, is it just the law? No, absolutely not. Let's turn to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. And we'll use a scripture um, that's well known, but we'll use the, the other aspect of this scripture, the other aspect of the scripture that we don't always emphasize. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. When I say Romans 6, 23, hopefully most of you re- recall that the wages of sin is death. But what's the second part of the scripture? The gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. We do not earn salvation. It is a gift. It is a gift, absolutely. 
but the law is part of what we have to do. Let's notice a few more scriptures about uh, that will help us understand the, the way to salvation. I want to spend a little more time on this, this fundamental topic than, than some of the others. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I've been asked many times, um, you, you know, if, if I've been saved, probably some of you have as well, and I've been asked by, you know, neighbors and friends, if I've accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord, how do you answer those questions? 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 15. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ. I don't have time to go through the whole passage, but uh, we are, we're beautiful to God. Now, when we sin, that's not beautiful. But God does love us, and Christ does love us. We are to God the fragrance of Christ because we reflect Christ in us. Our goodness is Christ in us. It's the fragrance of Christ that we should be emitting or showing to the Father. Among those who are being saved, an active tense verb, are being saved. Uh, We are not saved once and for all, once saved, always saved. We're being saved. Uh, there's many, many, many scriptures we could turn to. Let's let's go to uh, well, we're in Corinthians. Let's uh, let's go back to First Corinthians, First uh, Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, this sort of gives us the answer as to when our salvation will become complete. And then I probably need to move on to another point. First Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians 15, and let's let's read a little uh, passage here. And we'll begin in verse 40, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 40. So there are uh, celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies. There's heavenly bodies and there's earthly bodies. And so Paul is doing a comparison here. Uh, but the glory of the celestial is one and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There's a, there's a difference between the spirit world and the physical world. There's also a difference between the stars in the heaven and you know the, the trees on the ground. But really, the emphasis here is, is, is the spiritual. That's what Paul's trying to teach. So we'll skip verse 41. Um, let's notice verse uh, 42. So also is the rex- resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. Uh, you are now flesh. Now, flesh is corruptible physically and, and spiritually. But it is raised in incorruption. And you... Hope, and I hope to become incorruptible spirit beings in God's family. Incorruptible physically and incorruptible spiritually. We, we won't be able to be corrupted when we're, when we're part of God's family. One is sown in dishonor. The other it's, the other's raised in glory. One is sown in weakness. The other in power. When does your salvation become complete? At the resurrection. I better move on. Uh, we could note uh, other scriptures that, that I won't, but Romans chapter 5, verse 10, uh, talks about you know salvation and it's a gift and so forth. L- uh, related to this, let's, let's look at another uh, fundamental belief. Again, the, the title of the sermon is, What are some of your fundamental beliefs? The, the second point I'd like to cover briefly is a proper understanding of heaven and hell, uh, which sort of does tie into the first point, our ultimate destiny. I won't expound as much on these points, but let's uh, turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. Can we prove these things? Do we know where in the Bible to 
remind ourselves of these fundamental truths that we that we believe and understand and that we teach. John chapter 3 and verse 13. Uh, no one has ascended to heaven except he who came down from heaven, that is the son of, of, of man who is in heaven. So when someone asks you about Elisha, or when someone asks you about Uncle Bob or Aunt whoever, um, no one's ascended to heaven. Only the Son of God who came down from heaven. Uh, when this was stated, uh, David had been long dead, but we know from the Old Testament passages, we know that David will be resurrected in the, in the future and live again as a, as a God being. Uh, David was in the grave. Again, I won't spend as much time on, on, uh, on this. <clears throat> we already referenced Romans 6, 23. Don't need to turn there, but uh, it says the wages of sin is death. We'll often use that scripture to make the point that, that, <clears throat> that if we're unrepentant and we sin, we don't repent, uh, that's going to bring death, not eternal torme- t- torment in a fiery pit. It's going to bring death. What is our understanding of heaven and hell? Well, we just covered two principles already. No one's ascended to heaven yet except for Jesus Christ, and, and no one's in hell burning alive. I mean, right there, brethren, you, you know uh, truths that give 98% or 99% of the professing Christian world a lot of anguish. And I think you appreciate that if you have family that are professing Christians and they worry about, you know, the, is somebody burning in hell or, or whatever. Uh, we'll turn to, uh, to, to these scriptures, but I'll, I'll give you two more and then we'll, we'll turn to a couple. Uh, Psalms 6 verse 5 and Ecclesiastes 9 verse 10. Psalm 6 verse 5 and Ecclesiastes 9 verse 10. Both help us understand that there's no consciousness or memory in the grave. When you're dead, you're asleep. You're not burning in hell. You're not up in heaven, you know, hanging out with Peter. He's asleep too. Let's turn to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians. But again, brethren, very um, very important, a truth that we should appreciate, and I know we do. 1 Thessalonians, and let's notice in uh, chapter 4 and verse 16. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16. Now, I'll begin in verse 13. We... We read this at funerals, and we've had a few funerals lately, and those are those are sobering occasions. Um, Paul is addressing those who have died in the faith, and he tells us uh, that he does not want us to be ignorant concerning those who have fallen asleep. Uh, they're asleep. Don't sorrow as others who have no hope. Brethren, most of those in your neighborhood, most of those whom God has not called, they 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 really they're confused and 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 they anguish and they don't have the hope that you have um, because they think that those who have died before them are, uh, you know, again, they're, they're, they're writhing in pain or they're in purgatory, which the Bible doesn't even talk about all. It's a Catholic construct. Um, but he continues for this. We say in verse 15 to you by the word of the Lord with authority, Paul saying this, that those who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, which maybe we will, maybe most of us will, uh, we will we will not precede those who are in the grave already. God will give them the honor of being resurrected, whether it's a split second or two seconds or one minute. I don't know. But when the Lord himself descends with the shout of an angel, the dead in Christ will rise first. Verse 16. 
They're not already in heaven with him. They're going to rise and meet him just before us. It's a wonderful, wonderful truth. What then will happen with those uh, those who have who have uh, been raised? <clears throat> Let's turn to Revelation chapter 15. Revelation chapter 15. I really appreciate Mr. Ames being um, tenacious about this point uh, over a, a while, and and um, we've read this uh, all my life, and and I've got better understanding of what um, what Christ is saying here in Revelation 15. Uh, so what then do we look forward to? Revelation 15, uh, verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous. And I want to go ahead and read the context just to set the stage. Uh, another sign in heaven, heaven uh, great and marvelous. Seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. This is at the end of the, the tribulation and the day of the Lord period. And I saw, John saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. And those who have the victory over the beast, over his image, over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass. And who knows, we may be singing one of the psalms that we sang earlier today. Not There's a new song. I, I do know there's a new song here, but... We, we may sing some of the psalms as well. I'm not ignorant of the fact that there's a new new hymn. We look forward to being resurrected and standing before God's throne. That's powerful. That's awesome. But then what? Well, you know, turn back to Revelation chapter 5, verse 10. Revelation 5, verse 10. What will our function be then, brethren? Well, we'll then become kings and priests to our God. And we will reign on the earth. We will reign on the earth. And that reign, that rule will be a thousand years. And then there's a judgment period, most likely of a hundred years. Fundamental belief number two was our proper understanding of heaven and hell. This did not do it justice. But brethren, isn't that a lot more magnificent than what most of the world believes or thinks? A couple more points. A couple more points. <clears throat> the, se- the seventh day Sabbath. Do you understand and do you accept and can you prove the seventh day Sabbath? I just want to turn to one scripture here. Let's turn to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. Luke 4. Why do we worship on the seventh-day Sabbath? Is it because it's a Jewish tradition? No, no. It's because it is the Sabbath of the Lord. It is the Sabbath that God put in place at the creation of the earth when he rested. But also, Luke chapter 4, verse 16, it's the example that our Lord and the Messiah and the coming King reveals to us. Luke chapter 4. Verse 16, so as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath and and stood up to read. And you could turn to other scriptures, Acts 17, verse 2, and others, where the apostles and Jesus Christ observed the seventh-day Sabbath. I want to just cover a couple more. I've got a little more time. Fundamental belief number three. I'm number four. Number three was the Sabbath. Number four, divine healing. Mm, interesting. Divine healing. 
Let's notice 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. A fundamental belief of the church of God and a fundamental doctrine that God reveals through Scripture is that God is our healer. God heals. Now, you can and should seek medical attention when you need to. And we've, we've, we've been consistent about that. Mr. Armstrong was consistent. We're consistent. If you break an arm, and you know, you probably need to go have it set. If a doctor can diagnose something, that's something you should have a doctor do. Luke was a beloved physician. <clears throat> but do you believe in divine healing? Do you pray first? And then go to the night, to the uh, emergency room. Do you at least call the minister first? On, at least on your way? What if you're dealing with something chronic? How long have you dealt with it before you've asked God to forgive you of your sins? Ask God to show you what you can change? Ask God to heal you. How long have you gone before you've asked to be anointed? First uh, Corinthians chapter 12. <clears throat> Let's notice a couple uh, points here. Verse, verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. <clears throat> Paul does not want the church to be ignorant. And then he goes through some spiritual gifts. First Corinthians 1, uh, 12, sorry, 12, verse 1. And he d- doesn't want them to, you know, worship idols in verse 2 and so forth. And verse 3, three therefore I make known to you that uh, no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed. And, you know, he's, he's pointing their, them to Jesus Christ, that he is the Son of God, he's holy. And then verse 4, he talks about diversities of uh, gifts but the same spirit and differences of ministry but the same Lord. Uh, So there are different strengths that different ministers have. Um, There are different um, activities that, you know, some are better at writing, some are better at preaching. Um, Even some of you, maybe some of you are better at uh, being joyful and uplifting others. And maybe others of you are better at, you know, going out and just rolling up your sleeves and helping someone. But verse 7, the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the same Spirit. You know, one of God's names is Yahweh Rafika, God our healer or the eternal who heals. Won't turn to it, but please, please, no, James chapter 5, verses 14, 15, 16. If you're sick, call upon the elders and ask for them to pray for you. Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Healing is an important fundamental doctrine. Now, <clears throat> unless we live until Christ's return, then we're going to die of something. Doesn't mean you didn't have faith. Okay, God doesn't heal you of something. Doesn't mean you are a bad person or don't have faith. Paul wasn't healed of something, right? But this is an important doctrine. Is it a priority for us to seek God to heal us, to ask to be anointed when we have a, a problem? First Peter chapter 2 and verse 24. First Peter 2 verse 24. Jesus Christ is who Peter's talking about here. Bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we having died to sins might be reconciled or might live for righteousness and by whose stripes, whose beatings, 
you can claim the gift of healing. Paraphrasing it. So those are a few of the uh, fundamental doctrines. I want to uh, remind us of uh, just one more. Are you committed to the primary mission of God's church? The primary mission of God's church. Just two quick scriptures there. But this is very important. I, all of these are they're fundamental. They are important. Uh, let's turn to Mark chapter 16. And hopefully this is a passage that when we read it, you'll recognize it and know it and remember it. Mark chapter 16. I'll just add a little context to it. And notice in verse 14. Mark 16, verse 14. Now remember, the context here is after the crucifixion. So he has risen, and this is after the crucifixion, and he's giving his disciples, his followers, the apostles, his church, a job. It's called the Great Commission. It's the big job. And so he appears to the 11, verse uh, 14. And he sat at the table and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him uh, after uh, he had risen. And he said to them, go get about your work. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Not just the local inhabitants, not just Judah, not just Israel, but all the world. And it includes those in India and those in Africa and those in South America and all around. And of course, we know in Matthew chapter uh, 24, Matthew 24, I'm giving you two, uh, two easy scriptures here back to back, Matthew 24. We know that, let's turn to verse 14. We know that the gospel will go out. It doesn't say it might or might not, or maybe the gates of hell will prevail against God's church and you know, it'll fizzle out. It doesn't say that. That's not what your Bible says. Matthew 24. And let's notice in verse um, verse 13, the context is the end of the age. Matthew 24, 13. Who, he who endures to the end shall be saved. We need to endure. We need to grow. We need to hold fast to the end. And the gospel of the kingdom will be preached. In all the world, as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. And then you're going to see abomination of desolation. You're going to flee to the hills, and you're going to flee to the place of safety, etc., etc. It's not for the two witnesses to do the whole work for us. The church will preach the gospel as a witness to the world, and then the end will come. And let's... You know, as Mr. Armstrong said, let's die in harness. Let's die in harness. He'd rather, you know, be working until his death. Let's put all of our ounce into, of being in power into that. And you have a part to play in that too. Don't give up praying for open doors. We don't have all the answers that, you know, I hope Mr. Weston doesn't take offense at this, but we don't have all the answers at headquarters. We're trying to figure out how to get into India. We tried different things. I was looking at some statistics uh, regarding Israel lately, and we need to do better. We have some subscribers there. Uh, you know, Judah, the, the, the nation state of Israel. Um, we know the truth. Pray for us that God will give us wisdom, give us ideas. Study your Bible so when God calls people into the church, you can help them stick. You can be a witness. You can do your part. 
These are some of our fundamental beliefs, brethren. God is giving us a great, great opportunity. He wants us to have eternal life. He wants us to have salvation. He wants us to equip ourselves so we can help teach others. And there's a lot that we need to review and understand. I want to conclude, though, by saying that it's not by our might or our power or our intelligence. God's word is truth, John 17, 17. But God is the one who gives us this understanding. It's not our mind. It's not our intelligence. A couple scriptures to conclude. Matthew chapter 11. Matthew 11. Let's be humble, but let's be zealous. Let's remember that being a Christian is not a solo project. And I will not uh, apologize for saying that, you know, we have to bring our beliefs, our doctrines, our understanding into unity. That's what the Bible says. But it's not because we're great academics. What does God say? Matthew 11, a couple scriptures in conclusion. Matthew 11 and verse uh, 25. At that time, Jesus uh, answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven, Lord of uh, heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent. He gave them to us. Some of you are capable and smart and I like you and (laughs) but we're not the great of the world. We're not the great of the world. But you understand great things. Appreciate those things. Do you get up in the morning and do you do your Bible study and your prayer every morning to review these things? Last scripture, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 1 in conclusion. So I do want to sort of bring us back to uh, ground that we need to remain uh, humble and thankful and understand that God uh, has called the weak of the world and the glory goes to him. We're thankful that he's revealed these truths to us. So let's just conclude uh, with what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 27 and 28 and 29 and 30 and 31. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world, that's us, to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. Brethren, he has revealed to us these fundamental truths and others, and the world despises what we know, and the world despises us, and that is a glory to God. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence, but of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us his who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord.